Hello, Masters College. Looks like you have been decimated by smallpox. Uh, so, but it's prayer week, so we know how to respond to that kind of thing. Uh, I could be guilty today of piling on, uh, which is a penalty that they never give in the National Football League, so I feel safe. Uh, because I want to talk to you about prayer today. I heard it was prayer week. I was talking to Pastor Harry about what you guys were doing this week, and I love uh, the ministry of, of Daniel and, and the work that he does in teaching Christians to pray more strategically and effectively. And so I know it's been a powerful week for you, and I just wanted to add my voice to the Friday chapel and look at what I think is a, a powerful passage on prayer that reminds me of, of some important aspects that, that I think minister to my own soul as I, I want to be a more effective prayer warrior. So will you open your Bible to the book of Ephesians? And we'll look at just a, a little section in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And today I'd just like to spend a few minutes learning to pray with the Apostle Paul. I'll read to you starting in verse 15, uh, 15, 16, 17 will be the focus of our time, but I'll read all the way through the end of that paragraph so you can capture the thought. Ephesians 1:15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So reads the word of the living God. And what does it have for us today? What does it have for a group of college students who have been instructed and encouraged to excel in prayer? Well, I think it has for us a very powerful example of the Apostle Paul's prayer life, one whose prayers are recorded for us several times in Scripture. This is an exemplary moment of that. I think this this passage, a passage like this one, confronts us in our uh, tendencies towards prayerlessness, towards apathy, towards prayers that are weak and insipid, prayers that just seem to fizzle before they even make it out of your lips. 
Sometimes we can become weary in prayer. And I think Paul in this little paragraph serves as an example and a reminder in a genuine prayer that he was praying on behalf of these Ephesians and all the other Christians who would have received this letter to challenge us to pray more thoughtfully and more biblically and with a profound awareness of the relationship of our prayers in the throne of heaven. Praying with Paul answers some questions that we may have, questions that confront our tendencies, like when you pray, who do you pray more often for, yourself or others? When, when you pray, who, who comes to your mind at first? Do you pray about your most pressing needs for a girlfriend? Do you pray about your most urgent dilemmas, things that happen to you, flat tires, trouble with your friends? What are the contents of your, your prayers? Is it yourself, your desires, your sin? Do you pray mainly for your own family, for those you know best, for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Who do you pray for? When you pray, what's the content of your prayer? What's the focus? Is it the here and now? Is it the immediate needs that you have? I mean, do you have to fall down the stairs to pray? Some urgent dilemma. And because we're Calvinists, whenever we do that, we always pray, thanks God that that's over. Is it a crisis that provokes us to pray, meeting our physical needs, sickness, disease? Our prayers can be weak and insipid, repetitive and dry, lifeless and tired and shallow. And then we read a prayer like Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, which is Godward and richly theological. And we're reminded that we don't pray quite like the Apostle Paul prayed. Can you imagine the overwhelming burden he had for the saints that provokes lines like these? Can you imagine and fathom the deep theological grasp of the Apostle Paul? Can you sense his powerful and vigorous faith, his steadfast endurance, his incredible sense of purpose that drove his prayer life? A passage like this is a window that we look through into a, a Roman house where he's under arrest and what we see and what we hear through this little illustration of Paul's prayer life is a reminder of what a powerful prayer warrior he was. And it's a reminder that, that we can often fall short in our prayers, but God has provided for us this example that we wouldn't be discouraged, but that we would be instructed. Not that we would repine. I love when we sing that word. I've had to Google it almost every time. It means to fret, to worry, or to complain. And that's not what Paul wants us to do. He wants us to follow him as he follows Christ, who was an example of one who stayed in constant communication with his father. In this passage, we are schooled in our priorities and in how to pray for one another. We can learn how to pray for spiritual growth in one another. We learn to see that we need to not just ask God for more and more resources, but appropriate the resources that we have. That seems to be a, a reigning concern of Paul's prayer in this paragraph. Uh, we can grow in our knowledge of God the Father and him and our love for one another. It's a passage that teaches us how to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ, for our local churches, how to do that more strategically and better, and it simultaneously shows us that God's purpose for his people is clear, and it gives us a lesson in both prayer and in purpose 
and in the power of prayer, a lesson given by the Apostle Paul himself. So let's learn at his feet. Let's learn how to pray like Paul. Three words I wanna, I wanna give to you, explain to you how to look at this prayer, and we're not gonna look at the whole thing, we'll just look at the very beginning, and then I'll leave you the rest to explore in your own time of prayer. But I think if we look at the beginning, we look at the real heart of this thing. And the three words are the cause, the constancy, and the content. Simply that, let's look at the cause. The cause of this prayer in verse 15, for this reason. That links this long sentence, which is going to run from 15 to 23, to everything that Paul has said so far. Paul has been concerned to extol the great spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. You know this passage, it's familiar to you. Its depth is obvious. He speaks of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, verse three. He speaks of the doctrine of election in verse four, of predestination in verse five, of the glorious grace which God has blessed us in the beloved. He speaks of the atonement of redemption in verse seven, the, the lavishness of the riches of his grace, the wisdom and insight he's made known, the mystery of his will. He's spoken of Christ and his glory, his sacrifice, the gospel. It's all there in Ephesians one. And Paul uses that magnificent gospel truth. He uses these deep theological concepts. He uses good doctrine to provoke his prayer. He says, for this reason. Why does Paul pray? Because Paul knows who God is and what God is like. Why does Paul pray? Because Paul has come to see the glories of the gospel in Christ. And I think sometimes our prayerlessness is due to the fact that we have no motivation to pray. If your car did not drive because the line was on the E, you would know why that was. It's because you need to go to the gas station and put gas in it. There could be a deeper cause, like you're a college student and you don't have any money. But it's obvious. Sometimes I think we don't have fuel in our tank to pray. We don't have the theological depth and knowledge. We lack the information that would motivate and fuel our prayers so that Paul, after rehearsing the gospel of their salvation, verse 13, says, for this reason. You see, it's so burned within the apostle, his ministry to these Ephesians, which lasted uh, those, those years when he was there, chronicled for us in Acts 18 and 19 on his third missionary journey. Ephesus was near and dear to his heart. It was those missionary partners of Aquila and Priscilla, most likely, uh, that helped him found this church. And his tender affections were only uh, magnified with the great conflict that came in the Ephesian society as there was riots because of the effect of the gospel in this town. And then that tender scene on the uh, Milesian, Milesian seashore of Acts 20 where Paul is parting with them in that touching moment, his tender affection for the saints at Ephesus. It's been six years since he's been with them. His heart is full of a theological look at these people who are personally precious to him and it causes Paul's prayers to be provoked. Why is he praying? For these reasons the spiritual blessings that accompany gospel ministry. If you love Jesus, if you know God and his triune goodness is on display in salvation in a passage like this one, it ought to provoke our own hearts to direct our thoughts towards God. 
Friend, what a stewardship you've been given to sit in Bible classes week after week after week. And it's easy to just sit back and spin your pencil. It's easy to just take it all in and to do what's necessary to pass the tests and to write the papers. But can you pause in wonder and can you be provoked in your very soul to pray because of the wonderful things that you've learned about God his dealings with his people his gracious interaction with sin sick and sinners like us Paul was provoked to pray and this long sentence proceeds from the thankfulness and the blessings that he's aware of that are all the result of kindness and mercy and intrinsically part of salvation in which all believers share. I mean, this prayer is not the mindless repetition Jesus warned us about. This prayer isn't interrupted by 15 dear Lord, dear Lord, dear Lords. This is a prayer that's rich in content, isn't it? It's got substance, it's got reasonableness, it has motive, it's theological, it's practical. Sometimes I think we have a wrong idea about prayer that we've inherited from a culture influenced by Eastern religion and, and oddball uh, theological views that think that prayer has something to do with shutting off your brain and connecting with God some mystical fog, a wandering quest for a mysterious language even to address God. The church I grew up in as a kid, uh, I was semi-Pentecostal, hallelujah. And we, we even thought there was a special language necessary to communicate with God in prayer, that our, our plain English wasn't the language that really connected with him, but we needed a personal prayer language, and that involved disconnecting from what we knew. That is the opposite of what Paul's prayer looks like. It's substantive, it's reasonable, it's theological, it's practical. Meditation is a part of prayer, and it is a part of the, the Christian life, but it's never cut off apart from our reading and understanding of scriptures. William Bridge, Puritan, uh, we call him the bridge. He said it this way, reading without meditation is unfruitful. Meditation without reading is hurtful. To meditate and to read without prayer upon both is without blessing. This is that relationship between taking in the good stuff theologically and turning it over in your mind and growing in your understanding of these things and then turning them to God in prayer. Paul's prayer is driven by theological content. He says, for this reason, and he just enumerated all the blessings of the Christian faith. Paul makes his petitions to God because he knew that God is sovereignly working in and through his church. He knew that God is the one that gives life to the church and directs its growth and controls its destiny. And so Paul turns and prays to God on behalf of the church. You know, to think deeply about the sovereignty of God as it relates to prayer is not an impediment to prayer as long as you turn it to God in prayer. It's a dilemma, isn't it? How, how does that work, the relationship between God's sovereignty and prayer if God already knows and has determined the end from the beginning, then why should we interfere? You trust him, don't you? 
He's in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 115.3. Why pray? You can answer on one hand, well, prayer changes you. And that makes prayer just sort of a way of refocusing yourself. And certainly prayer does that. But that is not what prayer is for. That's not how Jesus talked about prayer. When Peter was being tempted by the devil, Jesus said, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. Apparently, Jesus believed that prayer was efficacious, and so does the Apostle Paul. God's sovereignty should not dismiss our prayers. It should never be pitted against our prayer. We should not have the attitude of apathy and indifference that says, since God knows, it doesn't matter what I pray. Sovereignty is the basis for every sound prayer. Sovereignty is the background for every sound prayer. It's why election and predestination fuel his prayer in the following verses. God is sovereign, he's in control, he's immutable, he's omniscient. Whatever will be, will be. But to say that there's no point in praying is a universal and absolute denial of everything Scripture teaches us about prayer. The Scripture teaches us that prayer does indeed affect change and that God, in his sovereignty, responds to our prayers you want to know how this works? So do I. And the only way we're going to find out is if we go to heaven. So between now and then, let's pray with great confidence in God's sovereignty. That's what caused Paul's prayers to be so effective. He goes on to say, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. He heard of their faith. He heard of their love in the Lord Jesus, located there, their love toward all the saints. This is so interesting to me. It had been six years since Paul had been there, I told you that, and having heard of, of this community and the needs that they had and wanting to write to them a letter to help them understand the structure of the church and the, the unity of the saints and all the glorious doctrines that he teaches them in this letter to the Ephesians. He knew that there was those who he did not know. And so he said he wanted to to recognize that there was some who he was not acquainted with that God had added to the church and he wanted to give twofold evidence of their genuineness as saints, their ongoing faith, and their continued love. Both are located in the Lord Jesus. This is just a way of Paul saying that he's praying for these people as genuine believers. And the theme of this relationship that Paul will revisit in chapter three, verse 18, will be his desire for their strength to comprehend with all the saints what's the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that they may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul, in a way, is introducing himself to some of these Christians. He's reminding the others of his love for them, their unity in that love, that this love is not just a uh, affectionate, warm-hearted feeling, but it's focused and grounded in the work that God has done in them. The love that the Ephesian believers has shown transcends all geographical, Gentile, Jew boundaries, as Paul emphasizes that theirs was a love towards all the saints, end of verse 15. You can't miss the big picture here. This, this, 
glimmer of faith and love that Paul wants to acknowledge before he prays further is a reminder that Paul is thanking God for their faith and love. All of his prayers are Godward. I mean, it's their belief in Christ. It's their love being practiced and affection towards one another. But he's thanking God for them in this prayer. That's what he says in verse 17. Faith and love are gifts from God, and Paul knows that, and it provokes him to pray all the more. You see, every time you learn something about God and the way he works in the world, every time you learn something about the nature of salvation, any particularities of theology, these all can be turned towards God in prayer with a spirit of thankfulness and gratitude. The litany of spiritual blessings was just a start. Every word he thinks of, their faith, their love provokes him to pray. You know what that tells me? That tells me that the Master's College is an ideal place for prayer. Because you will be, if your eyes are opened, continually provoked by acts of faith and examples of love. In this community, you will see evidences of faith. And those should be acknowledged and those should be taken in, but the thankfulness that should be cultivated in you as you see students who genuinely care and sacrifice for one another, as you see students, your peers, who take great steps of faith and decisions they make in their school, in their personal lives, as they take risks for God and faith, these are all evidences and opportunities for us to thank God for one another. TMC should be the most ideal place to pray because of all the examples of faith and love and display and care for the saints. It should be a place of legendary prayer because long before you were here, this was happening here. There's a, a legacy of faith and love and Christian be provoked to pray in a thankful way to God because you have so many reasons to pray. Every face you see will be a reason to pray. Every class you hear is a reason to pray. Every event on campus is a reason to pray. What an opportunity that you have in this place to cultivate the cause of your prayers, to be constantly provoked by theology and by God's people to turn to him in prayer is to develop a Godward prayer life. Well, second, let's look at the constancy of his prayers. Verse 16, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. It only makes sense that Paul's prayer would be unceasing because that's what he commanded the Thessalonians to do. And it only makes sense because he is constantly aware of all the blessings and all the opportunities and all the open doors for the gospel that his prayers would be constant. He gives uninterrupted and constant thanks for these readers and Paul's commitment to regularly and constantly thank God for the Ephesians is based ultimately on God's work in Christ in them. He says, I never cease. His heart is thankful, therefore he never stops expressing gratitude for them. The minute your, your heart stops being thankful, you will stop praying. 
But for Paul, this is ordinary, earnest, unwearying. It's why he exhorted others to pray continually, either in Thessalonians or Romans 1.8, without ceasing, I mention you, Romans 1.9, always in my prayers, asking somehow by God's will, may I now at last succeed in coming to you. He thought of these people, he thought of practical concerns and connections, and he continually, tenaciously, unstoppably went to God in prayer. What is it that hinders your prayer life? What excuses do we have when we notice a lapse in our tendency to go to God in a continual way? Tiredness? My blood sugar's off. You know, I'm not myself when I don't have a Snickers. I can't really focus right now. I can't pray. You know, my wrist hurts. I've been doing a lot of typing. I'm just going to pray for wrist healing and move on. It doesn't take much, does it? Puny excuses we pray, we raise against prayer. The things that can stop us from prayer, the distractions that enter our minds, probably the biggest one. I talk to students about this. They say, honestly, it's because I don't feel like it. You get that, right? Why don't we pray? Well, it's because we're not provoked to pray. We don't feel like praying. The problem isn't just that we're not praying continually. It's that we have these seasons of Life in these hours that go on where prayer is the last thing we're thinking about. How do we combat this? Well, I think Paul teaches us here the reason he doesn't cease to give thanks for you is because he remembers them in his prayers. You see, there's a cyclical relationship between prayerlessness and prayerlessness and prayerfulness and prayerfulness. If you lack a desire to pray, one of the greatest motivations and ways to provoke yourself towards continual prayer is prayer. If you're dehydrated, you need to drink some water. There are other ways to get water in you, but it's all just water. I could pour it in there. I could give you an IV if I could find your vein. I'm not really good at that. I've never done that before, but I'm willing to try anything. <laughs> but you've got to get water in you. Prayer, likewise, when it's absent, the only real return to that constant tenaciousness, that unstoppable zeal, is more prayer. The excuses and the indifference have to be laid aside. Look at the example of Paul. Where's he at when he's writing the prison epistles? I'll give you a hint. Jail. And what would your prayers look like in jail? And I'd be praying about my wrists being sore. You know, you got the thing on there. What do we call those? Chains. And I'd just be praying about my wrist being sore. I'd want to take a bath. I'd want to I'd go to Starbucks, get out of the house a little bit. I'd have lots of reasons to complain about my freedom, to complain about the Roman guards' bad smell, to complain about the soreness of the wrists, to not have my privacy, not have my freedom. 
Paul had lots of opportunities for complaint, and as he's writing this letter, he's the one in chains, but he prays not for himself, but for them. If we can get our focus off of our own selves and onto God and onto God's people, I think we will be more likely to be provoked in prayer. And so he makes remembrance of them, it says in verse 16. He doesn't say specifically what he remembers about them, but he remembers them. And then he uses this word, mentioning, a word used seven times in the New Testament. It just means bringing something up. He's mentioning these people who have experienced God's grace, who've been transformed by God's grace, and Paul is understanding what it's like. Paul knew that salvation was worth celebrating, and he often brought that to mind, that when God would radically intervene and provide, it provoked Paul to pray. And so he thanks God for them, and his heart is so full because of them. And as he continues to center his prayers on others and ultimately fix them on God the Father, he's going to say in the next verse 17 that he's the Father of glory, a very uh, Semitic way of talking about God. He's called the God of glory, uh, the Lord of glory, the Lord of glory, the King of glory. This is this way of remembering in Paul's prayers that everything goes back to God, the glorious Father. It's consistent with the way he thinks about all of life being centered around God, knowing that the Father is the source of all true glory. Glory is the splendor and brightness of the divine presence. All of that is just a removal of self from Paul. He's not praying about his chains right now. He's praying about these saints. He's praying for them. Self is removed. He sees God's glory and deserving of praise. And this is not just some academic theological exercise. He's concerned about these people, and so he prays, constantly prays provoked by rich theological content. So, so that's the cause, and that's the constancy. What's the content of his prayer? We're not gonna look at this whole thing, but just take a little taste of it in verse 17. He prays this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, and then this sentence just pours forth into other uh, phrases and clauses that are tied to it, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you would know the hope that he has called for you, that you would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, what's immeasurable greatness is power towards us believe, and that's gonna provoke him to think about the ascension of Christ because of the power that we have because Christ is praying for us and on and on all the way to the fullness of him who fills all in all. You see that the content of Paul's prayers is as rich as the cause of his prayers. The correlation between purpose and content when it comes to prayer is here. Paul's purpose in this prayer primarily is that the believers would be all that they are, that all that he rehearsed, their spiritual blessings in verse 3 through verse 14, would work out as a real experience in their lives. He has said that God has opened their eyes to the truth, that he has regenerated them, that he's caused them to be born anew, and now he's going to ask that they would come to recognize all that they have in Christ. He asks that God would give them that, verse 17, give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. I take this to be a reference to the Holy Spirit the one who is so closely connected to revelation and knowledge. 
Paul is writing to Ephesians in the Roman Empire. He wants them to have a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. He wants them to truly know God, to know his ways, and to know how to apply those ways to their lives. Where he goes from there is all the richness of Pauline theology. But get this, he wants them to be wise, and he wants them to know God. That's the simple, he takes it to the specific and the profound. I mean, these people understood the suffering that you have had if you've ever taken a class on Greek philosophy. Suffering. I remember taking a class in college on the aforementioned Greek philosophy, and we, we learned about a guy named Gorgias. Ladies, write it down in the baby name book. <laughs> Gorgias. That baby is so pretty. He's gorgeous. <laughs> anyway, he's, he's the author of a lost work, which how we know so much about it is really remarkable. It's called On Nature or the Non-Existent. He wrote a book about the non-existent. No wonder it was lost. <laughs> Here's the argument. Number one, nothing exists. Two, even if something exists, nothing can be known about it. Three, even if something can be known about it, knowledge about it can be, can't be communicated to others. Four, even if it can be communicated, it cannot be understood. It's why uh, Plato hated Gorgias, and it's why he's been called the father of nihilism. He also talked about, <laughs> forget it, it's stupid. <laughs> I mean, this is the deep stuff. This is what the Romans, the Greeks called uh, Sophia. This is the wisdom of the age. And Paul knows that these people are surrounded by groups of, of teachers that are just loving to just sit around and think about these things in circles and to, to talk about what it might be and what it might not be and how to communicate the idea of color by means of words. What? And Paul wants them to have wisdom, real wisdom grounded in the Hebrew scriptures. In Judaism, wisdom was not esoteric knowledge. It was applied knowledge. It was skill for living. That's what he wanted for them. And so we ask God to reveal it to them, to unveil or disclose it. You see, Paul isn't praying for these people to have a secondary spiritual experience, not to have a, another level or some, something happen to them that's shocking, you know, to have that spiritual buzz, that snap, crackle, and pop so many Christians are after, either by doing the next thing or having the next experience. Instead, he wants Paul to pray. He wants Paul, he's praying that these Christians, in light of all their spiritual blessings, would supernaturally know God more, increase in their knowledge of God himself, and then live that knowledge out, a deeper grasp of God revealed in Scripture. That's what you learn when you pray with Paul. MacArthur says this well the president. He says it this way. Many Christians spend a great deal of time and effort into looking for blessings already available to them. 
They pray for God's light, although he's already supplied light in abundance through his word. Their need is to follow the light they already have. They pray for strength, although his word tells them they can do all things through Christ who strengthens them. They pray for more love, although Paul says that God's own love is already poured out within their hearts to the Holy Spirit. They pray for more grace, although the Lord says that grace has already been given, is sufficient. They pray for peace, although the Lord has given them his own peace, which surpasses all comprehension. It is expected that if we pray for such blessings, if the tone of our prayer is one of seeking the grace to appropriate what is already given, rather than one of pleading for something we think that's scarcely available or is reluctantly shared by God. That's helpful. The more we learn about God, the more we love and interact with his people, the more we'll be provoked to pray like Paul, to thank God for what he has already done in Christ. And that means that we will have endless reasons and causes and people and concerns to bring to our God in heaven. Let's pray. Our Father, we never want to stop expressing gratitude for you. To hear this prayer, a request for deeper insight into God's plan and purpose for the saints, to help us to live what we already know, to appropriate the grace that's been given to us, is convicting. Father, we know that there's nothing more important than knowing you, worshiping you, the one true God, the true and living God. And God, may it be our boast in this world and even before you that we glory in the fact that we know you because you've let yourself be known. God, may we deepen in that knowledge of Christ. May we deepen in that application of his word. May we realize all that we have in Jesus. In his matchless name we pray.